This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. I'm joined here with my brother, John Freilich. And today we have another rapid fire episode focusing on cardiovascular disease. John, what article are you talking about first? So first up, we're going to be looking at the efficacy and safety of low-dose colchicine after myocardial infarction. This was a study published in the New England Journal in November of 2019 by Tardif et al. Okay, colchicine, I mean, I'm much more familiar with that for, you know, treatment of gout and pericarditis and some rare conditions. What on earth are we talking about colchicine and myocardial infarction? Uh, so it's a great question. As you know, colchicine is a cheap, potent anti-inflammatory medication. There was a study done in stable coronary artery disease that showed fewer cardiac events in patients that were given colchicine, but this was not a placebo-controlled study. There's also been other studies looking at things like biologics and methotrexate as to whether or not they may help in decreasing inflammation and therefore affecting atherosclerosis. So the question was really, you know, might colchicine be another drug to consider? All right. It sounds like some slippery logic, but uh, it was published in the New England Journal. So there's got to be something going on here. What was the study design? So this was a double-blind placebo-controlled randomized controlled trial. Patients were randomized to either 0.5 milligrams of colchicine or placebo, a multinational study based out of Quebec. The study population included patients with a new MI. They were enrolled within 30 days. Patients were excluded if they had severe heart failure, uh, recent stroke, demand ischemia, or significant renal or hepatic disease. Uh, there were a few different outcomes that they looked at. The primary was a composite of death from cardiovascular causes, resuscitated cardiac arrest, myocardial infarction, stroke or hospitalization leading to another coronary revascularization. They also looked at a number of safety outcomes as well. All right. And what did the patients look like who were included in the trial? So 2,400 patients were randomized to each arm. They were followed for a median of 23 months. Most were enrolled 13 days after their MI. The average age was 61. About 20% were women and 20% with type 2 diabetes. For 93% of patients, they had PCI for management of their index myocardial infarction. All right. And drum roll, please. What were the results? Yeah, so for this composite endpoint, the primary outcome occurred in 5.5% of colchicine patients versus 7.1% in the placebo group. The hazard ratio was 0.77 and it was statistically significant. Now, most of this effect was driven by lower rates of stroke and subsequent revascularization. They also looked at the safety data, and that showed actually similar adverse events rates between the two groups. Colchicine users did have a higher rate of nausea, some flatulence. Interestingly, there was also a twofold higher risk of pneumonia. All right. So, I mean, pretty impressive uh, positive finding here. What were the limitations, though? I guess all things considered, it was a relatively small effect size. You know, this data hasn't been replicated, and it was a relatively short duration of follow-up. Okay, yeah, and I, I think the other problem, obviously, as you alluded to, whenever you have a composite outcome, sure, it helps with your statistical power, but you don't know, well, what was the difference from? And in this case, it seems like it was mainly subsequent revascularization, so maybe a bit of pause, but still, this is pretty fascinating. Take-home point here? So colchicine is associated with lower rates of subsequent cardiovascular events in those patients with a recent MI. All right, and uh, practice changing for you? 
I mean, it is an interesting idea, but I don't think I'm going to be rushing to add colchicine to, you know, post MI management. Patients have already been started on sometimes four or more new drugs. I just don't know that there's a significant enough effect to then add on colchicine on top of it. Yeah, I agree. I don't think I'm going to be an early adopter to this one, but certainly if there's another positive trial, you know, maybe we have to shift our practice. Okay, so for our next study, Mike, what are you going to tell us about? This one is entitled A Comparison of Two LDL Cholesterol Targets After Ischemic Stroke, published in the New England Journal of Medicine in January 2020. Great. What was the research question? Does lower LDL targets improve outcomes among patients who've had a TIA or stroke? Okay. I mean, I think this is important for a number of reasons, but what do you think? Yeah, you know, I feel like whether it's stroke, coronary disease, or diabetes, if it's any of those things, yep, in the GIM world, it's important. And we know based on the SPARKLE trial published a number of years ago that high-dose statins are clearly the way to go post-stroke. But how high? And should we actually be treating to a target? So how did they design this study? Uh, This was an unblinded randomized trial in France and South Korea. It was funded by the French Ministry of Health and they got some support from pharma. They randomly assigned patients with stroke, so if they had a stroke in the last three months or a TIA in the last 15 days, to a low target LDL in Canadian units that's less than 1.8, in American units that's less than 70, or they were randomized to a target that wasn't that low, ranging from 2.3 to 2.8, and in American units we're talking 90 to 110. And the doctors could do whatever they wanted to reduce the LDL give them a higher dose of statin, add on azetamibe, um, any other tricks you have up your sleeve. Um, So that was left to the discretion of the attending and treating physician. Some key inclusion criteria is that they all had to have evidence of cerebrovascular atherosclerosis seen on CTA or MRA or coronary artery atherosclerosis. And also importantly, these were individuals who had a stroke or TIA, and it was a relatively mild level of disability, um, rank and score from zero to three, um, zero being no disability, and three being needing some help with ADLs. And remember that five is bedridden and um, six is dead. The primary outcome, another composite outcome, this was including ischemic stroke, myocardial infarction, urgent coronary or carotid revascularization, or death from cardiovascular causes, and there were lots of secondary outcomes. Pretty interesting. Okay, so take us through. What did the data look like? So the included patients, there was about 3,000 in total, followed for three and a half years, which is pretty darn impressive. Average age of 66, 66% men, BMI at 26, and the time since TIA or stroke was six days. So pretty soon after the event, about a fifth had diabetes and two thirds had hypertension. And so what happened? More aggressive? Did it work? Yeah, good question. The first thing that happened was the trial was stopped early due to quote unquote administrative reasons. That's what it says in the abstract. When you finally read through the manuscript, you realize they ran out of money. So that's what happened. Having said that, what did they find? They found that the mean LDL at baseline was 3.5 or 135 in US units. And then among the individuals targeted to the lower target, they went down to 1.7. And to the less aggressive target, um, they went down to 2.5. So that's the levels that they achieved. Of course, we want to know about hard outcomes, and I'll get there shortly. How did they get there is an important question. In the low target group, the people 
had statin for all of them, uh, as well as azetamide for about 35%. And then for the less aggressive group, only 6% got azetamide and everyone else, of course, was on a statin. You know, getting to the point here, um, the primary composite outcome occurred in 8.5% of individuals with the lower target and 11% with the higher target. That's an absolute reduction of 2.5%, a relative reduction of 25%. And again, composites are messy. This composite reduction was mainly driven by a reduction in non-fatal stroke. I'm talking a lot here, it seems like. The last thing I'll say um, is there was a higher rate of intracranial hemorrhage with people that had this more aggressive titration to their statin and azetamide, a 40% relative increase, albeit with wide confidence intervals, and higher rate of diabetes, again, albeit with wide confidence intervals. Um, okay, so take me through, what were some of the limitations of this study? Yeah, so it was unblinded. And in any unblinded trial, sure, people were randomized, and that's great. But when it's unblinded, you might have differential management between the two groups, and maybe that is influencing the outcome. There are also a couple of odd things. You know, nowadays, every trial has to be registered a priori if it wants to get published, especially in a big journal. This one wasn't. That's weird. And they said it was for administrative reasons. I don't know what that means. There was also no data safety and monitoring board. That's also a little bit weird. Um, those are a few limitations. I think the other thing I'll mention is that, you know, the devil's in the details. It's one thing to report an absolute reduction or a relative reduction, but it's so important to look at the Kaplan-Meier curves and see when do these curves separate? When is this benefit seen to the patients. And in this case, the curves didn't separate until about year four. So, you know, you're in for the long haul here, and that's important to at least note. Yeah, I think that's a really fair point. So what's your takeaway from all this? So take-home point, yes, targeting a lower LDL, less than 1.8 or 70 in American units, was certainly associated with a decreased risk of cardiovascular events. But it took a long time for those curves to separate, and there was a non-statistically significant increased rate of intracranial hemorrhage, um, as well as diabetes in that group. Is this going to change your practice? I don't think so. I would really like to see another trial, if it were blinded, even better. And also, a lot of the patients that we see you know, their rank and score is above three, and they're much older than the included patients here. So I don't feel confident that I can reliably generalize the results from this study to the patients that I see. So with that, we will go back to you, John. What do you have up for us next? So next up, we're going to be looking at a study published in the Annals of Internal Medicine in December of 2019. It's called Preoperative N-Terminal Pro-BNP and Cardiovascular Events After Non-Cardiac Surgery. This was published by Ducep et al. All right, and what was the research question here? Here they wanted to know, does BNP have an additional predictive value beyond the RCRI, or the Revised Cardiac Risk Index Score, for predicting vascular death and myocardial injury after non-cardiac surgery? That's also known as MINS. All right, and I mean, you spend more time in the preoperative setting and doing med consults than me, so uh, why is this important? Well, MINS is a really important outcome. It's the commonest vascular complication after surgery and is associated with actually increased risk of death. 
the RCRI score has been commonly used to try to risk stratify patients ahead of surgery, but there are limitations related to its accuracy. So BNP is a hormone uh, that's produced in the heart related to increased pressures, and we use it clinically for a number of different indications. Most commonly, you think about it in the context of heart failure, but in fact, BNP has been shown in a few different situations to be pretty good at predicting the risk of cardiovascular events. So the real purpose of this is, well, how much more information can BNP kind of help give us to predict adverse events related to surgery? Uh, you might recognize this name, Ducep. That was the primary author on the most recent CCS preoperative guidelines as well. Okay, yeah, I've noticed that you've had some good Canadian content tonight. So, uh, all right, and, and Ducep et al., uh, how did they design this study? This was a prospective cohort study. It was multinational. They looked at patients 45 years and older undergoing inpatient non-cardiac surgery. Uh, patients were having both regional or general anesthetic. Now, there are two different types of BNP that we commonly measure. These guys were specific specifically using the NT-BNP. This was collected preoperatively. They also measured troponins at 6 and 12 hours post-op, as well as on days 1, 2, and 3 post-op. If the troponin was greater than the 99th percentile, patients were then evaluated for ischemic signs and symptoms, and they also had an ECG done. Patients were also contacted up to 30 days after surgery to assess for any outcomes that might have happened outside of the hospital. Now, the primary outcome that they looked at was a composite of vascular death and this MINS, or myocardial injury after non-cardiac surgery, and that was at 30 days. And then MINS was both myocardial infarction as well as myocardial injury that did not qualify as an MI. Gotcha. The old troponitis, as I've heard it referred to. So if I have this right, this was not a randomized trial. This was a prospective cohort study. These individuals were 45 and older. They were undergoing a surgery that wasn't on their heart, but somewhere else. And they had NTBNP ordered and troponin ordered, and they sort of followed them along to see if they had this cardiovascular composite outcome. Is that about right? You got it. All right. So choosing wisely, I'm sorry. There was lots of blood work done here. Uh, what was the basic sort of table one? What did these people look like? So they had a cohort of about 10,000 patients. 40% of these patients were from North America, 30% Asia Pacific, and 20% from Europe. Uh, the average age was 65, 50% were women, 20% had diabetes, 15% coronary artery disease, 3% had a history of congestive heart failure, and about 8% had a history of either peripheral vascular disease or cerebral vascular disease. Most of the surgeries were typical of what we would see, so orthopedic, general surgeries, uh, urologic, and gynecological procedures. 33% of these were considered to be low-risk surgeries, and only 4% were deemed kind of urgent or emergent. Okay, that's good to know. And um, what did they find? Was BNP all that helpful or what? So yeah, BNP was helpful. Now, the way that they did this was they broke BNP down into uh, different categories, and the reference group was a BNP value of less than 100. Now, when you look at the hazard ratios for vascular death and MINS at 30 days, they saw a pretty interesting trend. If the BNP ranged between 100 and 200, the hazard ratio was 2.27, and the incidence of that outcome was 12%. If the BNP was a bit higher, between 200 and 1500, the hazard ratio was 3.6, and the incidence of a vascular death or MINS was 21%. And if the BNP was really high, so greater than 1500, the hazard ratio was 5.8, and the incidence was 38%. Now, the other interesting thing that they showed was that when you then combined the BNP and the RCRI, patients were actually classified more appropriately into different risk groups. Uh, if you took about 1,000 patients, 
250 of them would be better reclassified into a more appropriate risk group by using both the BNP and the RCRI score together. Yeah, that's really, really impressive. And for anyone who's wondering what the heck is a hazard ratio, just think about it as the rate of an outcome. So if you hear a hazard ratio of five, that means that the rate of the outcome is five times higher. That's really frightening, but impressive to see how much the BNP uh, appears to identify people at really high risk. So let me slow down. What were the main limitations here? Uh, so, you know, you've already identified it, but this was an observational study. The other thing is that the BNP cutoff value, so those categories that we just talked about, those haven't been validated. Um, one of the other issues is more of a practical one. You're in clinic, you order a BNP, it comes back elevated, but the patient's not in heart failure. They don't have obvious symptoms. What are you going to do about that? Do you need to order more tests like an echocardiogram? Do you need to do more cardiac testing in general? And do you need to potentially delay their surgery? Well, that isn't entirely clear what to do about the elevated BNP on its own, other than we know that means the patient has higher risk for cardiovascular events after the fact. The other thing that is a bit challenging is that in some of the preoperative clinics, you don't have access to measuring BNP that day. There are some point of care BNP at tests, but it's not widespread. And so the ability to measure this in real time and then give the patient information about what their risk is based on the BNP, it wouldn't necessarily happen the same day, which I think is another issue. Yeah, 100%. Um, it's just so impressive. You know, like, uh, let's say mom or dad's going for a hip replacement and their BNP pre-op for whatever reason comes back above 1500. That means they have a 38% risk of this badness occurring after. I'd certainly want to time out the surgery, but I guess it's up to them. The other thing I just wanted to highlight, not to get too epi-nerd, is how impressive the C-statistic improved from RCRI versus RCRI versus BNP. So what's a C-statistic? Well, just think about how well it will discriminate a low-risk person from a high-risk person. The C-statistic for just the RCRI is 0 0.65. When you add BNP, it goes up to 0.73. That's truly remarkable. It's extremely rare for a C-statistics to improve that much from a single value added. So I'll leave it at that. I'm clearly impressed. But uh, what's the take-home point here, John? So preoperative NT pro-BNP levels strongly associate with major cardiac events and even death in patients having non-cardiac surgery. Uh, is this practice changing for you? I think this is pretty impressive. The idea that you can measure one single blood test and have a pretty impressive ability to determine someone's risk is, is quite important. I think we still need to think through some of the logistics about how we manage this and how we approach this in real time. But yeah, I think that it's going to be more important for clinics to find ways to be able to measure BNPs preoperatively, be it in the lab or with these point of care testing. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. And it'll be fascinating to hopefully see if then acting on this information can improve outcomes, but uh, only time will tell. Yeah, that's a really good point. All right. So last up, we have another article published in New England, January 2020. And this was entitled Alcohol Abstinence in Drinkers with AFib. Interesting. So what was the question here? So among adults with excessive alcohol use and AFib, does alcohol abstinence reduce the burden of atrial fibrillation? So and what's the thought here? Like, why is this important? Yeah, I mean, it's just kind of cool the fact that 
we're talking about alcohol use and how that might be related to atrial fibrillation. Full disclosure, I read this article over the holidays. I was thinking about the holiday heart and I was like, oh man, this is fascinating. So that's why it was important to me at least. (laughs) So how did they do this study? Uh, This was another open label, a randomized trial. So it was unblinded. It was conducted in Australia and uh, funded by an Australian research group. They included individuals who had 10 or more standard drinks per week, and they had uh, paroxysmal AFib um, or persistent in AFib, but they were currently in sinus rhythm. Uh, I'll explain that in a bit. Um, The key exclusion criteria, they couldn't have a DSM alcohol use disorder, ejection fraction less than 35%, or psychiatric disease, and they are randomized to abstain from alcohol or usual care. And by abstain, I mean they were given oral and written advice, and then monthly oral or electronic communication. The patients had to keep a log of how much alcohol they drank, and they were threatened that if they didn't log anything, they would get a random urine testing for an alcohol metabolite. And then these individuals were monitored for AFib via pacemaker or implantable loop or a mobile app called AliveCore. I'll mention up front, it's not as if they had a pacemaker inserted for this or anything like that. It's just if they already had one, that's how they were monitored. They had two primary endpoints, which begs the question if it's a primary endpoint or not, but they were freedom from recurrence of AFib and total AFib burden, defined as the time in AFib during six months of follow-up. And the plan was for a year of follow-up, but uh, another example of a study that had to end early. And what do these people look like? So 647 were screened, 140 were in the randomized trial, 85% men, average age was 62, and 100% were Australian, or at least I assume they were. Uh, I'll just tell you what the main results were. In the abstinence group, they reduced their drinking from 17 standard drinks to two standard drinks. That's an 88% reduction. At least that's what they reported. And in the control group, interestingly, They also reduced their drinking from 16 standard drinks to 13 standard drinks. That was a 20% reduction. Of course, let's talk about the clinical outcome. If you are believing that AFib alone is a hard clinical outcome, well, the recurrence of AFib was much lower. So about a 20% reduction in AFib in the abstinence group compared to the control group. And then the AFib burden uh, was about 50% lower in the abstinence group. Of course, that's a relative reduction. What about absolute reduction? A 1% absolute reduction in the time that they were in AFib. Some interesting secondary outcomes, higher AFib hospitalization rate in the control group and 10 pound weight loss in the abstinence group. That's impressive. There are a lot of really interesting outcomes. I mean, I'm quite impressed by the abstinence rates. Like, I'm not sure what the intervention was that they did, but that's pretty amazing to get people to cut back their drinking that much. Oh, I agree. And like quite literally what they did was either electronic communication or verbal communication in these monthly intervals. Now, what magic script they had, I'm not sure. And of course, this is subjective reporting of alcohol, but regardless, I'm impressed. Pretty cool. Uh, So let me get this right. You know, if you can get your patient to cut back on their drinking, less burden of AFib. If they are Australian, it seems to be the case. (laughs) But up front, I need to mention, of course, this was open label, huge problems with recall bias. This was a small trial and this study was ended early. 
I guess probably because they ran out of money, but more so because they had such a hard time recruiting people into this study. So key limitations there. What's the take-home point? Uh, take-home point, you know, talk about alcohol use, I guess with all your patients, but especially your patients with AFib. I can guarantee you I've never even thought about this. So hopefully now I will. Will this change your practice? Yeah, absolutely. I think I need to add this to the list of important things to uh, counsel patients about and some pretty darn good evidence to support it. And sure, maybe the, you know, reduction in AFib was small on an absolute scale, but the weight loss, the reduction in AFib related hospitalizations, uh, I was impressed. I agree. It's all pretty amazing. Yep. It sure is. All right. So continuing on with amazing stuff, let's talk about good stuff. So what good stuff do you have for us tonight, John? So this good stuff is coming straight out of outer space. It's a case report that was published in the New England Journal about an astronaut who had a DVT and how they managed it. It's a pretty amazing story. In a nutshell, they actually were just doing some screening ultrasounds on each other and they found this occlusive thrombus in an astronaut's jugular vein. Uh, it's pretty wild. It sounds like they had anoxaparin on board and they used that initially for treatment of the DVT, but then they had to ship up some apixaban on one of the shuttle runs. But, you know, the astronaut did well. Uh, pretty interesting story. Yeah, it sure is. So uh, take that choosing wisely. <laughs> Apparently, you know, screening these otherwise healthy astronauts uh, has picked up a DVT and man, some cool marketing for uh, apixaban anoxaparin right there. Out of this world. Out of this world. There you go. Kieran would appreciate that. Um, so what am I uh, excited about? There's this really cool website called resistanceopen.org. We'll post the link on our website. Huge kudos to Derek McFadden, who is probably the smartest person I know. Infectious diseases doctor recently recruited to Ottawa. What is resistance open? You can type in whatever address you're at, whatever hospital you're at, whether you're in the Sioux, whether you're in Boston, whether you're in, you know, Mumbai, and it will give you the local resistance rates to E. coli, rates of MRSA, as well as other resistance rates. So that's pretty darn cool. Um, that's my good stuff. That's amazing. Yeah, that's a really interesting resource. So check it out if you have the time. Speaking of time, I think ours is up for tonight. Uh, John, thank you as always. Thanks a lot. See you next time. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Thank you to our audio editor, Emilio Garcia Flores. We are also indebted to Amol Verma, founder of The Rounds Table, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director of The Rounds Table.